Learn about the world of psychedelics with psychologist, thought leader, research pioneer, policy advocate and senior university lecturer, Dr. Stephen Bright. Stephen shares how his desire to impart evidence to inform and shape the bigger public discussion about drug use and policy was the catalyst for him to take the career risks in the conservative world of academia that have got him to the place where he is today, one of Western Australia's foremost leaders in this area. He also talks about his more hands-on support work at large festivals and events through his pill testing and trip sitting. Stephen provides a detailed, insightful and amusing history of man's relationship with psychoactive drugs and why we're drawn to their use. Stephen also talks about a key part of his current work, the trials and use of psychedelic-assisted therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder, depression and anxiety, which is truly fascinating. We also have a really in-depth discussion about this mystical element of psychedelics and where they take people to. Stephen provides a wealth of information mixed with his passion in an area that is fast becoming more and more of interest to people who wish to expand their horizon and perspectives by alternative means. So enjoy, Stephen. Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. Drugs, psychedelics, their potential benefits and use in both therapy and psychological development are some of the topics we'll be exploring today with my guest, Dr. Stephen Bright. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Cool. So you were originally born and raised in Geraldton. Correct. That's right. Can you tell me what it was like to grow up in Geraldton? Um, it was quite isolating, actually. There were, there were good aspects to it. I mean, I got into surfing. That's where I, I learned that I could play a sport. I could never catch a ball or kick a ball or anything and um, really, really got into surfing. Uh, but it, it is a small town and... Um, I guess it was good then moving to Perth and seeing the bigger world and then from Perth to Melbourne and seeing the bigger, bigger world and then travelling overseas and seeing, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I go back to Jolton every now and then and I, I see people and I feel like, you know, have you, have you guys even gotten off the couch um, <laughs> and, you know, to, to get something other than another bong? Like, it's not, nothing's changed <laughs> and it's, it's very insulated, but... Yeah, so it had its advantages and its disadvantages. When did you move down to Perth? Was that uni time or? Yeah, so I moved to Perth when I was 22. I actually failed year 12. Right. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to, to do. My dad was a school principal and our mum was a teacher. They wanted me to go to uni. I didn't know what I was going to do. So uh, I was more interested in becoming a professional surfer. Um, yeah. And so I went on, when I turned 18, uh, I went on... John Howard's um, funded surfing program, aka the Doll. That's what we used to call it back then. <laughs> right. Mum and Dad said you have to get a job, uh, and so I got into um, carpentry. Hated it, and uh, got some careers advice, and they suggested that I, you know, that I go to uni. And so, at twenty-two, I moved to Perth to study at um, Joondalup ECU in psychology. Yeah. Are you a are you a proud West Aussie? I'm 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 an agnostic West Aussie. Uh, right. I was a very proud Aussie heading over to Melbourne. I think we've got some of those beautiful beaches here, um, untouched um, surroundings. You know that haven't been polluted so much. And you know, I wouldn't swim in the Melbourne Bay. It's it's just awful. Um, then going to Melbourne, I got to see how much culture there is over there, um, the art and so forth. And so coming back to WA, 
Um, I do miss that side of things. The really strong communities there, like the psychedelic community in Melbourne is incredible. You'd hold an event with 800, 900 people turn up. He did that in, in Western Australia. Nobody would turn up because they're all paranoid that somebody's going to <laughs> see them coming to this psychedelic forum. And so what, what I'm learning is, having come back, is the, the subtle differences between uh, WA versus the East Coast, particularly when we're trying to implement um, strategies and interventions. So uh, since moving to ECU, I've helped establish a Students for Sensible Drug Policy chapter there yeah and the stuff we were doing that they were doing over east just wasn't working nobody was turning up mm. um but it's got its positive uh sides as well i've gotten back into surfing and i was surfing in melbourne but i've picked up kiteboarding now and um it's also had positives because we we are sort of not just geographically isolated but somewhat intellectually isolated from the rest of australia um I was very surprised that uh, I was able to get support from ECU to move ahead with a trial for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. I'm not sure that would have happened in Melbourne. And in fact, I know it would not because we went to a similar new university that wants to innovate in 2016, Deakin University. And before it even hit the ethics committee, their deputy vice chancellor of research had just vetoed it. Right. And so, yeah, it's got its, its positives yeah. and its less positives. Maybe, 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 maybe they're not even positive. It's just different. It's, it's, just it's different. different. Yeah. And I'm trying to learn now how to utilise that difference to get the, the things I want to see up and running in Western Australia happening. And so one of those is um, pill testing, for example. And, you know, people... Uh, may have seen over the festival season there's all this media going on about how politicians are going to have blood on their hands if they don't introduce pill testing. I don't think that's the way we should do things in Western Australia. And so when I heard one of my East Coast colleagues on the local radio, while well, I was in Melbourne actually, on 6PR, I phoned him and said, you know, WA is a bit different. We need to do things differently over here. We don't want to have a public debate uh, out on the, on the front page of the Sunday Times or no. on 6PR. Yeah. We need to have quiet conversations. The punters here don't want pill testing. They're concerned that it will bring undue attention to the festivals they're going to. Yeah. And just cross their fingers, no one dies, because that will bring undue media attention. The festival organisers don't want it either, which is quite valid because... What they've seen over East is with that first and only trial that happened last year in the ACT, that was the second go. The first one was spilt milk, uh, which was held on national property. And the federal government stepped in, even though it was approved by the state government, because it was being held on uh, federally owned property. And they said they would strip them of their licenses. Right. And so, yeah, in terms of pill testing, again, it's about, I've been going out to festivals, engaging with the community, trying to build relationships with people and understand how this culture is different to the culture over east right. so that I can sort Western of Australia yeah and how how does the Western Australia culture differ well I can only really speak from um, my perspective in terms of working within alcohol and other drug policy and treatment um, as I said before I, there's this real paranoia among people in Western Australia, which makes sense because Perth's small. Yeah. Everyone knows each other. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's the key thing that I've noticed is that people don't want to publicly advocate for policy change. Um, even, you know, Facebook, uh, people will 
over east will have on their timelines their, their facebook page you know all this stuff about pill testing and psychedelics and things like that and they'll share it whereas over here people might like it but they won't share the but mm. they won't share the post because they're worried about what other people might think about them mm. Mm. very interesting over east there's this there's this momentum at the moment about coming out as a, a person who uses psychedelics yeah and they're doing this at festivals <laughs> over there and it's this, it's just so incredible because it's kind of the opposite here where everyone's hiding in the closet closet yeah very true very true so um as the listener will have picked up you do an amount of research with psychedelics and drugs you've got a variety of roles can you just Run me through them again. <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. Go on. So I'm employed by Edith Cowan University as Senior Lecturer of Addiction, and so that role involves coordinating a course about psychoactive drugs, which students can take as a major or a minor. Usually psychology students take as, as a double major or youth work students. And the aim of the unit is, I actually took it as an undergrad student 20 years ago myself at Joondalup PCU. It's about challenging people's preconceived ideas about drugs and, you know, which ones are harmful and how does alcohol relate with that? How does policy work? Are we doing evidence-based policy or are, is policy sort of being driven by the media? Um, I'm an adjunct senior research fellow at the National Drug Research Institute here at Curtin University. And uh, I did that because there was a period of time where I needed an academic affiliation to be talking with media because the uh, public hospitals I was working with usually didn't want me talking with the media about these sensitive issues. And uh, so we have... The universities, reciprocal... is, universities are all right with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, provided you don't say anything just ridiculous if you're mm. talking evidence base um absolutely universities right. have been very supportive and uh we have a reciprocal benefit you know in this relationship with them because uh, when i publish research they get a, a, their affiliation with it and i guess in turn um i get to work with some really really uh some of australia's best researchers in drug and alcohol are actually based yeah. here in perth at Endry. so there's there's that added, added benefit uh i am vice president of psychedelic drug <clears throat> i'm vice president of psychedelic research in science and medicine or prism which is a not-for-profit incorporated charitable organization that aims to facilitate uh, psychedelic research in Australia through supporting uh, the research and advocating for the research. Um, I also uh, founded a <clears throat> I also founded a, a, a service or a program called Alcohol and Other Drug Media Watch, which is basically uh, a takeoff or a send off of the ABC Media Watch. Yeah, and we launched that in 2016 in Victoria. And basically what we do is uh, engage with uh, the media and, and sort of pick up when there's you know, some poor reporting issues, but try to engage them, allow them a, an opportunity to reply. And so there's a website, www.mediawatch.com. Um, and we set up guidelines for journalists and that's now moved, that's sort of really progressing mm. ahead with another organization over east sort of taking the lead with the guidelines component so that we will see um, legislative guidelines on the way that people, uh, journalists, uh, must report on alcohol and other drug-related mm. issues. And it's the same organisation that did this with mental health 20 years ago. And, you know, they've, they've seen 
some excellent improvements in the way mental health issues are now being reported in the media. And so I think we're going to see the same with alcohol mm. and other drugs. As, as I listen to you, there's a sense of um, leading out research and, and almost bringing, dare I say, more evidence-based truth into the world on, yeah. on your subject. Where, is that true? Is, yeah. And where, where does the need to want to do that, irrespective of the subject matter, where does that come from in your story? Well, it actually started, I think, when I was studying um, addiction studies 20 years ago, the course yeah. I now coordinate. Yeah. And I realized that there is a difference between facts probabilities and opinions and people often in conversations talk about things like their facts mm. and in fact you cannot prove anything it's yes. actually a logical fallacy to believe that you can prove something you can only disprove something and as i was sort of learning Hence about the scientific methodology the scientific of a, method of a null hypothesis exactly oh yeah you've got it before my students um <laughs> And so something that I was picking up on while I was learning about all of this information, all this evidence about alcohol and other drugs was what I was hearing people talking about was in, um, di was diametrically opposed to what I was reading about. So at that point I went, I think I want to pursue this as an area of research. Um, and so I did a PhD looking at the intersection between media its impact on policy, whether sort of media drives the policy or policy drives the media. And it's a, it's a bit of a two-way street, but I think particularly today, it's more media driving the policy. Mm. Um, and more so, what impact does that, does that then have on either increasing or decreasing alcohol and other drug-related harm? And so that sort of set me up for the AOD Media mm. Watch project. Yeah. And then, the other thing is, um, so so I am an, empir an empirical person. I, I that that's the approach I come from. I want the evidence, um, but understanding that evidence is certainly fallible. Um, yeah. You know, we, we have at the moment the replication uh, issue in psychology and medicine because research is based on statistics. So someone arbitrarily set the statistical value of point. Zero five, oh, and so if you, you get yeah, so it's, it's a significant, significant result. But that means that if you run that same experiment, and it's not actually true, if you run that twenty times, you'll randomly find it once. And with publication bias, that means that where they only really publish significant findings, um, you end up with all of these studies that get published that probably aren't actually seeing something that's actually there, and there's not really any incentive for researchers to be doing replications. You don't work your way up through academia by replicating other people's work. No. You do new work, you do new. Yeah, and new, so, new. Uh, yeah so, so there's that aspect of it. And I think um, it actually winds back nicely to, to what you were sort of talking about growing up in Geraldton. Something that I tapped into, whether it was in me, but I certainly tapped into in Geraldton, was I realised I'm an I'm an adrenaline junkie. I like surfing right. big waves. I like um, snowboarding and you know going over eighty foot jumps. I, I I really enjoy that, and I've applied that to the way in which I work uh, as way? an academic. Yeah. So in what I, way? Well, I'm a risk taker. Right. I was one of the first Australians to be advocating for psychedelic science, starting back in 2011. 
Um, I was one of the first researchers in Australia to talk about this impending problem, which we now see is, 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 is happened, which is called novel psychoactive substances. So in the last five years, say, there's been a good, at least 500 drugs identified that have entered the market and being off and off sold as um, traditional illicit drugs, either heroin, which mm. is why we're seeing all these overdoses uh, in North America, or being off sold as ecstasy, which is why we've been seeing all the deaths at the festivals. Mm. So they're not actually the base, the base substance, the derivatives are. They, they are, and they, they, they've been developed very cleverly to work around the law. Because in most countries, the way the law works is they have a list of chemicals. And so if you tweak the chemical, then it's not on the list and it's legal. And for many, for, for, for some time, these things were actually being sold legally, yeah. both overseas and in Australia. You could, in, in Victoria, you could go to a sex store and buy uh, something they called synthetic cocaine, which basically contained um, a, a stimulant chemical that's very powerful. It's in fact, it's what they're talking about at the moment in the media, this monkey dust stuff they're talking about in the media is actually MDPV. You can actually go to the store and buy it in 2011, 2012. And um, so I think get, I, I like to get on things early, get onto ideas early mm. and be innovative. And that is a double-edged sword. If you want to advance yourself as an academic, um, what you do is you jump on everybody else's projects and publish a whole lot of papers. Where if you're the innovator, one, you're pushing against you know, the man, the, the authorities yeah. and everything. And in addition to that, you've got to do all the hard yards yourself yes. and put your teams together yourself rather than just jumping on what everyone mm. else is and doing. And not everybody will probably want to jump on your team. If no, no. Given that they want to advance themselves. There you go. So how have you got to where you've got to? Oh, could you, could you uh, re, 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 reframe that perhaps? So, so how have you progressed um, if you are the risk taker in, in, a, in a non-risk taking environment? Um, I've tried to keep my focus on particular topics. So yeah. um, my partner, I call out to Ali, uh, I often say I'm the accelerator and she's the brake. Right. And I'll use her as a test, ca test case sometimes. Um, medical cannabis was an example. Uh, bef as before we saw the changes in the laws around that, I was getting requests to speak with the media and, and so forth. And Ellie said, you know, don't go out there. There's all these other people that are doing stuff out there. Just, just focus on the psychedelics. Um, even with my social media, sometimes I'll uh, just show it to her before I post something on Twitter and say, is this appropriate? Yeah. Um, and I think I've learned over time how to be, how to have more political now. So that's certainly something that's something I've learned in the last few years. Um, I think it's worked, it's worked out well for me by, by innovating. Um, but it could have gone the other way, yes. you know, jumping on psychedelics back in 2011 and advocating for them could have been very detrimental for my career. I was very lucky that it wasn't. Um, with novel psychoactives, it's then led into the pill testing debate and that's something I'm very interested in as well. And so um, that was helpful in that respect. Um, and to be honest with you, with the media stuff, um, I... Uh, 
just about had a breakdown after submitting my PhD and getting mm. the reviewers' feedback. One was glowing and one wasn't, and I was in the fetal position under my desk trying to figure out what I was meant to do with this. <laughs> and so I've taken a break from that for a while, and then I just saw an article um, in the paper in Melbourne, and it was just furious, and at the time I was a, a member of the board for the Victorian Association for mm. Alcohol and Other Drug Agencies. And yeah. they said, well, why don't, you, why don't you set up a project? And so that Christmas, I learned how to do some HTML programming. We launched it at their conference. And, um, and from that, it's grown. We've now got a webmaster and you know, it continues to grow. We're engaged with uh, Mindframes, this group over east. Yeah. And we're actually awarding uh, at the VADA conference this year in February, um, the 2018 Journalist of the Year, who did the best reporting. Oh, right, so yeah. yeah, we're not just focused on who's doing a, a poor job, <laughs> yeah, but but we we and and even when they don't do a great job, we say like these are the recommendations, you know, on how you could uh, how all journalists could work better to avoid these issues, and. Um, the reason I probably crawled under my desk was because a lot, a big part of my PhD focused on discourse analysis, which is based on French philosophy. And I spent probably years going down rabbit warrens, reading about French philosophy, and I just didn't want to go back there. Uh, but two things have happened. One is I've got a journalism honors student um, that started with me, and he's now looking at whether uh, or what are the uh, enablers and barriers for journalists talking about alcohol and other drugs. And I gave, sent him a great example in the Sunday Times uh, this week. There was a big piece on fall saying how, you know, people were just dropping drugs willy nilly and nobody mm. gave a shit. And then on the side, column by the same journalist talking about how the Falls Festival's organisers have been in discussion with the Fremantle Council to introduce pill testing in the future. And so I just thought, that's really weird. Yeah. Um, and so I said, maybe you need to talk to this guy as one of you, the people that you interview. And uh, I've also connected uh, quite serendipitously with uh, another guy that's just submitted his PhD using a similar approach, discourse analysis. Um, I was actually supervising his partner uh, last year who was an honours student who looked at the relationship between psychedelic use and empathy and uh, we met, I met her partner and um, in doing so I've started mentoring him in how to turn some of what he's written uh, in his PhD into some papers and so I've sort of I, I, I've, it's taken me a few years but I'm now I'm now slowly easing myself back into the French philosophy right so you describe yourself as it was a uh, an ethnopharmacologist, yeah. right, which is a lot to do with somebody who studies the relationship between humans and drugs. So can you expand on that for me a bit? Yeah, so it's, I'm not sure it's in the dictionary. Because I think, oh, well, you know, I'm an ex-management consultant. I used to make words up every day. <laughs> but I, but I, I will attribute to where the word was coined. It was uh, yeah. Dr. Alexander Shulgin. Yep. Um, an infamous psychopharmacologist who was interested in psychedelic drugs and the way that the different shapes of the chemicals uh, had an impact on different subjective experiences. Mm. And so given the limitations in technologies, you know, sort of in the 60s and 70s, his approach was 
He started with mescaline, just started tweaking the molecule of mescaline, and then he'd take a low amount of it, um, see if there are any toxic effects, and if not, just start upping the dose. And he reported about this uh, in a book called Phenethylamines I've Known and Loved. Yeah. Um, he would... Uh, it provides, it's actually censored in Australia, it's a censored book. Right. Um, uh, it describes the synthesis process for hundreds of new psychedelics that he created, dosage and qualitative reports, not just from himself, because when he found a good one, he'd have a little dinner party, invite his psychiatrist and psychologist and yeah. you know, the anthropologist friends around and say, oh, try this, guys, and tell me what you think. And, um, Sounds yeah. like a dinner party to go yeah. to. Yeah, um, Shogun, I mean, he's one of my heroes. He died at the age of 101 only quite recently. Um, but that, you know, that's that real empiricism. Yeah. He, was, he was testing them on himself. And he actually um, produced a lot of knowledge about how the serotonin receptor, particularly the, the um, 2A receptor, which is responsible for the effects of psychedelic drugs, through sort of just going through this process of systematically taking the, tweaking the compound. He released the second book. The reason he released the first one is he could, it was in about 92, I think, the first one. And he could see where things were going in the US with the DEA, and he was worried like all his work would be shelved and no one would be able to read it, so he just published it. At the time, he had a license to be doing all the work he was doing. The DEA were pissed when he released the book uh, because, of course, anyone could, with, with a chemistry background now could start making it, these. And, and they, they, they were. They were coming out of laboratories in the US. They were yeah. all completely legal. Um, they then went around his house and took his license off him, trashed the place, basically. It was quite a sad story. Um, you know, he had a lot of peyote cactuses, which take hundreds of years to grow, that they just smashed and... Um, but they sent him a very clear message, and his response to that was to write a second book, Tryptamines of Known and Loved, containing another series of, um, yeah. of, of chemicals that he'd worked on um, and you know, the effects associated with those. Um, he did, I, I know the book is censored because I read that in Tickle. He was actually in Australia um, representing the defence in a case in Sydney where somebody had been caught with a drug called uh, 2CB, uh, sometimes referred to as tryptosy. It was one of Shogun's drugs that became quite popular because mm. it sort of has some visual effects, but it's kind of like MDMA at the same time, and it doesn't really affect your cognition, so you can still have a conversation. It's been used by some therapists after MDMA was made illegal. And so he's over talking, uh, d doing this work, uh, when he found out that the book was censored. And so, being the sort of guy he was, he wrote to the Australian Censorship Board and said, I didn't know this. I've been sending all these books out to people in Australia. I don't want to be breaking the law. Could you please give me a list of the books that are censored in, uh, censored in Australia so I know for the future? And they wrote back, we can't give you that because that list is censored. Yeah. You just have to find out by transgressing it. <laughs> Apparently. So... so so yeah, so can you tell me a bit more, I know it sounds daft, but what is our human relationship with drugs? I mean, you, to, to be transparent, you know, I've got a, a degree in psychology myself, and um, I suppose on a very basic level, drugs are compounds which affect, uh, create various reactions within the body and bring about various brainwave states and things like that. Um, and, and so on one level, they, surely they intensify a very natural state 
for us or something that we're capable of. Mm. Um, so what has been our relationship with drugs? I mean, they, they, they seem to, you know, there's a whole rise of shamanism and, and this big thing on ayahuasca now, which is coming from the Amazon, which is plant vines. So, you know, it, they've been around. For the history is fascinating. Yeah. But sort of what you were just talking about there is the psychopharmacology. So we can explain it away in terms of what's happening in the brain and how mm. they interact with pre-existing receptor sites or how they release um, neurotransmitters that are in the brain. But that's quite a reductionistic approach. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, a fellow called Zimberg came up with a, a model that's really based on Timothy Leary's work, Set and Setting, because if you give a person, um, if you take alcohol, for example, at a wedding versus drinking alcohol at a funeral, your subjective experience will be quite different yes. because of the set and the setting. Uh, and so it's very important to... It's just so we're clear, set and setting means... Set being the uh, psychological state the person's in and also their yeah. physical state. Have you eaten or yeah. not? And the setting um, being... Well the there, environment, so. yeah. yeah. Okay. And so yeah. so, yeah, it's important to think about that. And then if you take it a step out further, you can start to talk about the sort of socio-cultural context within drug... Uh, in which alcohol and other drugs are being used. And so if we think about it at the moment in Australia with alcohol, you know, we see a lot of problems with binge drinking, mm. this recent phenomenon of, you know, the one hit punch. Mm. Um, there's that within Australian culture. So it's not only the alcohol, the person's um, psychology and, you know, whether they've eaten or not and whether they're drinking in Northbridge or at home, but it's also the broader culture and the drinking culture we have in Australia. People in Australia, I, I've got a colleague who did um, uh, ethnography research, uh, which basically is, uh, in his case, going in, it was going into raves or um, uh, clubs in over east and uh, taking some MDMA or, or ecstasy at least uh, and talking to the punters. And uh, basically, the conclusion of his PhD was Australians like to get fucked up, whether it's alcohol or it's MDMA. And so we apply this culture yeah. to all our different drugs. Right. So that, that's Australia. Then so when you say fucked up, what do we actually mean by is, is that? Is that escaping? Is that trying to heal something at a deeper level? Is it trying to transcend something? I, I think with drinking... It's actually, uh, it's, uh, sorry to butt in, but at a subconscious level, you take something because you want to go somewhere. Mm. Is so that I, correct? I talk about different types of yeah. drinking. So there's um, you know, drinking yeah. to enhance the situation you're in. There's drinking because things were really shitty at work today and yes. I just want to forget about that. Um, so there's different yeah. um, intentions for drinking. Um, I think... I missed the first part of your question. Um, but it, it was, it was. What do we actually mean by fucked up? Mm, mm. Is it escape? Is it? Yeah, is so it? Is it trying to heal at a deeper level and integrate? Is it? Well, or is so, it all so, of the above? With alcohol, it's not. It's 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 people. Well, people are self medicating with alcohol, but yeah. it's actually making their situation a lot worse. Mm. It creates this very vicious cycle, particularly with depression. 
Um, so we don't tend to talk about self-medication, we talk about alleviation of dysphoria, and right. that could be cannabis or, or whatever drug, uh, but the, the, the function of it is to alleviate the dysphoria. So, you know, what's the function for the person's substance use? Is it to enhance the experience? Is it to forget about? Uh, is it to make themselves feel better about mm. the current situation? Um, I think that in, in a broader setting, uh, in the festival setting, I think that's where we see that culture being applied, this idea of getting fucked up uh, at the culture, and it could be for all of those reasons above. Mm. But then, you know, if you, you, you mentioned sort of the, the move towards people using ayahuasca and having ceremonies all around mm. Australia, they're going in with a very different intention. Yes. I mean, I, I, wouldn't call, I wouldn't call ayahuasca a drug per se. No. It's, not, it's not necessarily a particularly pleasant experience. So people are going in with very clear intention and ideally they're doing integration work after that. So, yeah. so that's quite different. Just to, just to run back though, so in terms of the history of it, we've got evidence of people brewing alcohol maybe some 10,000 BC. Right. So alcohol is one of the drugs we know has been around for the longest. Uh, by ancient Egypt times, um, they were making wine. And they even found a flower that contains a dopamine uh, a reuptake inhibitor. So it sort of enhances the effects of wine. And they used to put the, the blue lotus flower in the wine and have kind of these ancient Egypt rave parties. Right. Uh, then in the, uh, the, the old world, I guess we'd call it, in Europe, um, there's a long history of paganism, use mm. of uh, various deliriant drugs such as Datura, uh, Hembane, Mandrake, uh, Belladonna. And this is actually associated with many of the myths we have about witchcraft at the moment. It's from the pagan use of these drugs in which they are very powerful chemicals. And so I, I would recommend that nobody uh, try eating some, some Datura or some Rugmanja because you don't know what sort of dose you're going to have. The effects can last 72 hours. Right. Um, but in, what they would do is apply it topically, and it would create this sensation of flying. So hence the, the witches' cauldrons brewing up the brews that they would administer yeah. and have these ceremonies as part of uh, pagan, uh, I don't know if it's witchcraft, but, but, but pagan um, culture. Um, we've got, if you go to the, we, I think we've kind of forgotten about that. A lot of people have forgotten that we used to do that. Um, mm. If you start moving across the world into Russia, there's evidence of the use of Amanita muscaria mushrooms, the very, the very pretty uh, red mushrooms with little white dots on them that you see in fairy tales because they're psychoactive. Mm. Um, and there's all kinds of stories around how they have been used. Um, some, some of the shamans would drink the urine of reindeer that had eaten them because that had taken out one of the toxic elements. These days, people put them in the oven to, to bake them to, to get rid of it because I don't know what um, reindeer piss tastes like, but I'm sure it's not that pleasant. <laughs> um, there's, there's some suggestion that it was even being used in England and or you know, sort of in parts of Europe among the elite. And because the chemical is actually not broken down, it's all passed out through the urine, mm. the upper class would get the first, you know, the, the <laughs> first helpings and, and you sort of drink each other's urine that's one. There is some evidence for it, but um, I is don't, there any I don't evidence know. of any sort of 
psych native psychoactive use and plants here in in Australia, you know, pre-colonisation. Absolutely. So the best evidence is for paturi. So paturi is... Um, uh, <clears throat> Can't, I can't think of what the, the plant name is for it, uh, something hops woody. Um, it contains a chemical in it that's similar to nicotine. And so people would chew it. Uh, they, would, they would turn it into sort of a, a gel-based product that would be chewed, put it in the back of the mouth sublingually. And it was used as a stimulant um, when people were going out hunting for long periods. But I think probably also a little bit recreationally as well, because this particular plant only grows in a very specific part of Central Australia and there's evidence of trade routes across Australia where the paturi was being traded with other, with other right. um, indigenous Australian tribes. Um, there's also evidence of other um, plants being used psychoactively, but for ethical reasons, given that it's sort of not in the public domain, it's not something I would probably feel comfortable okay. talking about. But definitely there is evidence of psychoactive um, use of plants by Indigenous Australians. Um, and then you've got sort of the, the New World, so as we yeah. sort of mentioned earlier, and we don't know how far back that dates, but it could be at least 2,000 years that people have been using um, DMT-based products in the Amazon region. And what fascinates me about this is that... that's become all the thing, hasn't it? DMT and ayahuasca and... Yeah, yeah. Um, look, from a therapeutic perspective, I think it has some benefits, but one of the problems with working with plant-based products um, from a clinical perspective is you've got less control over what's yeah. in it. Um, but certainly there's, there's, there's observational data suggesting that it could have some benefits, mm. um, particularly for depression, substance use disorders... Trauma is probably not something I'd recommend people utilise it for. Um, there have been reports of it being helpful, but I just, I mean, the experience, the ayahuasca experience is very unpredictable. You don't know sort of where it's going to take you. And that's why I like the idea of MDMA as a therapy for PTSD, mm. because we've got a pretty good idea. Everyone responds pretty much the same way to, 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 to MDMA. But what fascinates me about ayahuasca from sort of an ethno-pharmacology perspective is you've got, what, millions of plants in the Amazon? One of them contains DMT, and if you eat it on its own, does nothing, because our body has an enzyme, monoamine oxidase, yeah. uh, and so it breaks down all the DMT we eat. Then they, there's another plant that's got a monoamine oxidase inhibitor in it. Now, if yeah. you have that on its own, it doesn't do much. If you have a really large dose, you might get a little bit of sedation, maybe a little bit of trials, but you gotta have a lot of it, not, not what yeah. they would have been able to do over there uh, with, with their technologies back then. And somehow they figured you mix the two together and, and you boom. create one of, the, yeah, one of the most powerful psychedelic concoctions that we know of. It's fascinating. That, 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 that fascinates me. I, I like those questions where, um, you know, is, is, is that just coincidence? There's a lot of plants out there. How did that happen? Yeah. And if you ask the shaman, they, the story that's been passed from generation to generation was that the plants told them to use them. them together, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Then you've got, you've got cactus use heading further north. Yep. Um, so the Trichocerus species sort of in Central America... Uh, and then finally, peyote, um, as which people would be more familiar with in sort of the uh, Mexico and a little bit of southern US. 
Um, and also in Mexico was, of course, where psilocybin mushrooms were first discovered by Westerners in the 50s when a banker um, went over there. His wife was, a, um, was from uh, France, I think. Mm. Because in Europe, there's, there's quite a difference between people who come from the UK and people that come from mainland Europe. Yes. In mainland Europe, they, they are mycophilic. That means they like mushrooms. They go out and pick them. In the UK, mushrooms are deadly. There's toadstools, you might die. You don't go out and pick up mushrooms. Yes. And so Wasson had come from that um, mycophobic perspective and his wife took him out and collected mushrooms and got him, got him into this and he you know, got interested in hearing about these um, uh, uh, ceremonies that were being held in Mexico and so he was then able to go down and participate one and very famously, I mean, it's written up in Time magazine, the, the ceremony he participated in and then brought... Uh, psilocybin into Western culture. Hmm. So you've mentioned before about the, the use of various drugs um, in therapy. Can you tell me a bit more about that? A and how does it work? Yeah, well, I, look, we use, we use all kinds of drugs in therapy, uh, high yeah. intensives. I, I think the distinction yeah, yeah. is around the psychoactive drugs. Yes. Um, and this really started, I'm just trying to think, this really started sort of in the 40s once Hoffman identified LSD and he knew it was a profound compound but wasn't sure what people would do with it. And so it was sent out all across the world. Uh, people gave it to uh, individuals with schizophrenia who didn't have a very pleasant time, not surprisingly. Mm. Um, it was used by psychiatrists to get them to have an more of an empathic understanding of what it might be like to have schizophrenia. This is back when psychedelics were referred to as psychomimetics rather than psychedelics. What does that mean? Uh, mimic psychosis. Right. Psychomimetic mimic psychosis. Right. Whereas psychedelic actually means um, expanding the mind. And mm. it comes from a dialogue between a philosopher um, so, so it comes from a, 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 a conversation between a philosopher and a psychiatrist um, who didn't like this term psychedelic and the philosopher had actually been administered uh, mescaline by uh, this particular psychiatrist because it was being given by philosophers. Back then it was seen as a way, well, let's break out of the mould and think about things really mm. philosophised by opening up the mind. And uh, yeah, they, they came up with that term through some correspondence between each other, and they thought yeah. that was a better term than, than, than psychomimetic. And around, it was around that time that the drugs were starting to be used as adjuncts to psychotherapy. And so in Europe, there was um, psycholytic therapy where people were given small doses and in the context of psychoanalysis, just to yep. sort of loosen up the mind. And then in the US, in sort of typical US fashion, they give people massive doses, <laughs> uh, creating, you know, full-on peak mystical experiences. Yep. And they were finding that was particularly helpful for people that were experiencing problems with alcohol or were dying. Um, and the reason the research wrapped up was because 
of the popularity of these drugs within the counterculture movement. And it right. wasn't a good time for um, you know people like Timothy Leary to be going on yeah. national television telling the youth to, to turn on, tune in and drop out because they were at war with Vietnam. Yeah. And so... They were mobilised. Yes. Yeah, yeah, people, people that took LSD didn't want to go to another country and shoot people. Mm, um, and so very quickly, uh, Nixon um, you know, announced the war on drugs. Essentially, what he was referring to is the war on psychedelic drugs. Mm. And the research was very quickly shut down. It then started up again with Rick Doblin, who was a psychiatrist. Sorry, not Rick Doblin. There's two Ricks. Rick yep. Strasman. So yes. Rick Strasman um, really opened Pandora's box back up. Oh, he he yeah. was he was trained as a psychiatrist when psychedelic therapy was happening, and it was his life dream to become a psychedelic therapist. And so, after he'd sort of matured in his career, he approached um, a mentor and said, "How can we how can we do this?" And he said, "Well, first we'll use DMT because nobody knows what DMT is back then in, mm. in the nineties. It'll get straight through ethics, um, right. and, and and just do some really basic stuff. You know, just look at the metabolism and and blood checks and things like that. Really basic study. And as he was doing that research, of course, um, people were having profound experiences and talking to him about those experiences. There's, there's a whole film where they interview. Oh, there's some of the, films, there's books. There's, yeah, uh, I mean, cause, the cause God he, molecule. He, he he opened Pandora's box by doing this research. At the start, he would say, so it felt like when you were under the experience of the drug, this was happening. And they'd say, no, dude, you weren't there. Yeah. I was there. <laughs> and, um, and so uh, he sort of thought he'd do a little thought experiment and said, well, what if they were actually going somewhere? And that's when he got some of the richest data of the, the qualitative experiences yeah. people were having. And the reason he finished up his research was because... Um, he spoke to his um, yogi master, who said, "So, you know, you're telling about me, me about these, you know, strange, fascinating realms people are going to. Where are they exactly?" And he said, "I, I don't know." And then questioned whether it was ethical to be sort of shooting people out into space, really not knowing where we were sending them to. But that kind of uh, ended the embargo on psychedelic research, and from there. Um, it started stepping up with John, Johns Hopkins University doing trials in which they gave people psilocybin in a randomized controlled trial where methylphenidate was the active placebo, which is uh, Ritalin for people that don't know uh, the drug names. Um, and they were able to demonstrate that psilocybin could um, provide uh, or induce a mystical type experience very regularly. And that this experience was rated by participants as one of the top five experiences in their life and the top five most spiritually meaningful mm. experiences of their life. And this was retained at 14-month follow-up. Um, they did a few more trials there. They analysed the data again and looked at some other measures they had, which showed that it was also changing people's personality. It was increasing their openness. To... So, so openness to so openness is a personality variable. So, um, basically, the Big Five model says that there's really five dimensions to personality. Um, there's uh, conscientiousness. Yes. There's agreeableness. Yeah. Uh, neuroticism. Introvert, extrovert. And 
openness. Openness. So open. Right. So it's this really broad concept, but but it was showing this this shift in in, in people's openness. And what was paradigm changing is up until then we thought personality was pretty much set. Hmm. It doesn't change, but these people that were having these mystical experiences, mm. their personality was changing. And from there, um, it's really hard to sort of say the, the chronology of it because it's just exploded. Yeah, so you've got uh, MAPS doing the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD who are now doing phase three multi-site international trials that have commenced. Um, the FDA, uh, of course, approved that. Mm. Um, they've been given breakthrough designation because their phase two data was so good and they are hoping to have it up as an FDA medication for that particular treatment by 2021. And the, the FDA even gave them a compassionate access scheme. So if you're in the US at the moment as a US citizen uh, and you have a therapist that's trained in uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, you can actually access it without being part of the research. Right. So that's going gangbusters. Um, there's uh, the group that are looking at psilocybin in relation to people with end-stage cancer. Yeah. And that sort of leads on from that earlier research that was being done before it was all shut down. And they've conducted two really big studies so far that have demonstrated that the psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy reduced people's levels of anxiety and depression. It increased their quality of life. It increased their relationship with their significant others as reported by the significant others. So yeah. basically it's improving their life before they die, allowing them to die with dignity. And I, I think that that's probably gonna move on to phase three pretty soon, which means that that's all moving ahead pretty quickly as yeah. well. Um, there's been a lot of media recently around Compass, which is a for-profit organization and uh, they have patented the synthesis pathway for psilocybin, which is a bit of an obstacle for the people in the universities doing research, uh, such as that I just mentioned. Um, but they are looking at depression. Mm. And there's been one study at Imperial College which demonstrated that people with um, treatment-resistant depression had a very positive response to uh, psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. Right. The Compass are, are for-profit and they're just going massive with this now. And it's creating a lot of controversy in the psychedelic scene because, um, you know, is, is psychedelics all about making profit? And MAPS have been very clear, they're a not-for-profit organisation. And so they had to make a for-profit organisation uh, for the MDMA to be sold. But all the money that from that just goes back into the not-for-profit yep. and and back into all the wonderful work that they do. And I guess the final bit of research, particularly given the area I work in that's interesting, is um, the use of psilocybin in particular. There's also some evidence for ayahuasca, but particularly psilocybin for treating addiction. And mm. so there's been a good study, uh, a small study done at Johns Hopkins, where they found that 80% of people were no longer smoking 12 months after. Mm. Like the best pharmacological interventions we have at the moment is Champix, and you get about 25 to 27 people not smoking. Yeah. That's, that's massive. They're doing a randomized control trial now of that, yeah. stepping that up. Uh, New York University. And what is it these, sorry to butt in. Um, what is it that these things, that these things are doing? Are they just allowing us to go to um, painful, source 
experiences that might be affecting the rest of our lives that are manifesting themselves in addictions and things like that. Is, is that, in essence, what they're doing? Allowing us to get there or... I can't give you a definitive answer, but I can give you yeah, some hypotheses. I don't, I don't want to, you know, we talked about this reductionist view that I said earlier on, you know, have the compound and the... And, and, you know, when I look at stuff, I like to play, on, play with it on lots of different levels. So the real bigger, bigger level, but then also the real sort of finer level. So this is kind of where I was thinking about it. Yeah, so it, it is drug dependent. So with the MDMA, um, it turns off the, uh, turns down the functioning of the amygdala. Um, so it turns down the fear response, allowing people to talk about the trauma. And also turns on part of the prefrontal cortex, uh, which is associated with language, so they can talk about it uh, oh, in more detail and, and with with insight and reflection. Mm. Having done training for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy late last year, what it continues, and I've seen videos of it already, but what continues to blow me away as a psychologist is watching these people um, sort of go inward listening to music for 20 or 30 minutes and then come out of it and just have this profound insight, like this restructuring of the situation that you might take 12 weeks to get a point yeah. to a person to using CBT. Um, in addition to that, it releases oxytocin, so that helps build trust between the therapist and the client. I mean, the reason that the current, the current uh, first line intervention for PTSD is exposure-based cognitive behavioral therapy. And there is evidence for it, but it doesn't work on a lot of people because if you can't talk about the trauma, it's not gonna work. <laughs> and tough. other people have ways of subtly not experiencing it, sort of turning down the emotions so yeah. that it doesn't work so either. So skirting around yeah. it while you're talking. So MDMA allows people to work in this window of tolerance. And what fascinates me as well, having watched you know hundreds of hours of videos now, is it really enhances the transference reaction um, so there's always a male and female co-therapist in all of the psychedelic right. um, therapies, but um, you know people were, you know, I'm familiar with transference, which is where a person sort of transfers or projects somebody from their life, their past, or an authority figure onto the therapist, mm. and it's usually quite subtle. This was, yeah. this, this was not subtle. The, the, the poor poor uh, Mike, Michael Mithoffer was being abused by this female uh, patient who was clearly projecting the father who had abused her onto him yeah. and, you know, and then wouldn't talk to him and would only talk to Annie, the, the other yeah. therapist. Um, so it, I think the MDMA is a catalyst for the psychotherapeutic process. Yes. With psilocybin, with depression, and perhaps, well, so with depression and mystical experiences, I think from a neurological perspective, it's about turning off the default mode network. So the default mode network is um, a series of connected pathways in the brain that sort of keep us um, in this conscious state we're in at the moment so that you and I are able to have this conversation. If we yeah. had it turned off, we would be all kinds of things. It's, yeah. it's the filter, if you like. So yeah, it's filtering yeah. the, the information. We'd be through. all over the place in gibberish. People with depression and OCD, their default mode network is hyper-aroused. Yeah. And psychedelics actually turn down the default mode network significantly. Right. And what this does is, we used to think psychedelics you know, turn on parts of the brain. That was what we thought in the 60s. And in some ways that's true, in some ways it's not. By turning off the default mode network, what you end up with 
is the brain cross-talking. All these different connections that wouldn't normally occur um, start talking with each other. And so this does a couple of things. This could enhance creativity. If you've got depression, you could see a situation in a completely different it's perspective. Also a third party point of view. And I, and I think it's also integral in the mystical experience. Mm. And so with people within stage cancer, I think it's the mystical experience mm. that is what's so important. Is You've used this word mystical a couple of times, and it's interesting because earlier on we were talking about Australians who like to get fucked up, and I asked you what fucked up actually meant. But, um, but going back to this mystical experience, you know, it's, is a mystical experience different to almost this unlocking of something that's causing PTSD or depression? Is it something going to bigger, higher planes, or is the mystical experience the releasing of the pain, or is it both? Oh, the mystical experience Good question, mate. is, um, yeah, look, different, and depending who you ask, I mean, if you ask a yogi, the mystical experience is achieved through many hours of practice of meditation to reach nirvana. Um, but basically, we can define it. We've got psychometric mm. tools to define what it involves, and it's ineffable. Yeah. People can't describe yes. what it is in words. Because um, it is an experience, and experience becomes before language. That's one of the things I learned when I did my neuro-linguistic programming course, is that words on one level are hugely inefficient. <laughs> they, 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 they do describe, though, a sense of connectedness, or sort of everything being interconnected yes. uh, in the universe. Uh, people talk about ego death. And so with ego death, what happens is you sort of just become, you disappear. The, the, the false facade of this ego that you and I have at the moment that are allowing us to have it this conversation. Separated. It keeps us as separate persons, disappears and we're all part of the collective unconscious. Yes. Um, I, I think they're the, the key defining features of a mystical experience. And so it can be achieved through yoga. It can happen spontaneously. Um, there are many different ways, but psychedelics reliably induce this. Takes you straight there. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of debate about this because um, the philosophers back in the 50s and 60s were saying, you know, that's like taking the uh, helicopter to the top of Mount Everest. You've got to climb the mountain. Um, and so there's yeah. a bit of debate over whether it, whether we should be taking shortcuts or not. Because one of, one of my, um, one of my uh, questions I had, and look, I'll, sh I'll share a story with you. So I went off, um, so many, many, many years ago, I, I came across a book by a guy called Graham Hancock, you know, um, Fingerprints of the Gods, and, and it blew my mind. So many, many years later, um, so 15 years later, I then, I then you know, he, he's coming to Perth, so I'll go and see him at the convention centre. So I think I'm going to talk about lost civilizations, and we spend half the day talking about psilocybin, DMT, ayahuasca, and stuff like this, and I'm like, wow. So, so then my next thought is, because, you know, to be transparent, I, I, I liken myself at times to be an explorer of the human consciousness as part of what... You're a psychonaut, that's what we call them. Psychonaut. Um, and, then, you know, that's part of what this podcast is all about. You know, I get, to, I get to delve into the human experience of, you know, now 80 of different people. So, so, but at the time I was working for a very reputable American um, oil and gas company um, who were very strict... 
yeah, who, um, you, you know, and and they and they were very strict on um, piss testing and all that. So, so my question to myself, and this is where I got that reductionist, the compound does something. Mm-hmm. And so, so then I started looking at it and going, well, right, so th- this is obviously a mystical experience. I'm all up for a mystical experience because I like learning and expanding and, and there's something about them that draws me. And I'm curious to know if everybody is drawn towards a mystical experience or something. But um, so my question to myself was, uh, and aided by Google, was um, wh- what is it that the compound's doing and how do I get there without the compound? Right? Yeah. So, so, so in that research, I then came across binaural beats. And, and, and the whole trying to entrain your brain. So, so that then introduced me to the idea of entrainment. And so therefore, going back to what you've just said about, there's some debate about whether we should be taking this stuff because it's like taking a helicopter ride up to the top of Everest. Without doing the hard work. Without doing the hard work. However, by going to the top of Everest and knowing what the goal looks like and knows what it feels like, one might then be motivated to do the hard work because you actually know where you're mm. going now. You know, if you sit at the bottom of the mountain, you don't know where you're going. And by having that exposure and having your whole body and your physiology, phys, you know, brain waves, everything will have had that exposure to the end destination. So you are on one level entrained. Mm. Mm. So therefore you've primed yourself to have it again and again and again, potentially without the compound. Is there, there some logic in that? Yes, there's, there's logic in it. I think is there, some? <laughs> no, there, there is logic in it yeah. because because I've actually had a similar experience. I haven't come across that term in training, Trainment. but yeah, I've had a similar experience myself. I think um, you know to end, end the debate on it. My position is um, sometimes people don't have time to climb the mountain. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna kill themselves through suicide. Or they're going yeah. to die from cancer. They don't have time. They, they, need, they, they need the express ride. Yes. Um, but I've spoken to lots of people who have talked about similar experiences where they have, um, uh, you know, gone on an ayahuasca retreat or they've done something like that. And then, then they've got into meditation and doing those sorts of practices. Yes. Um, yeah, so I think, I think that's definitely a pathway some people go on. I'm not sure everybody is looking for a mystical experience. Mm. One of the exclusion criteria for me for doing psychedelic therapy is people that um, are high on needing to be in control because to have a mystical experience, you have to let go. go And and I've seen a lot of people, um, you know, that their their intention was to get fucked up at a festival, (laughs) but they ended up having a spiritual experience. And so I've ended up trip sitting them um, through that experience and reframing. You're not having a bad trip. This is just a challenging experience. And, you know, the more you fight it, the worse it's going to be. Was it somebody mentioned to me before? The the rate of your learning is faster than you're used to. (laughs) There's a lot of information coming in. And, uh, you know, people often with the ego death, they think they're dying. And so we bring the paramedics in and just get them checked out and comfort them. But basically, we just hold space with them. Um, We don't guide them per se, but just hold the space so that they're able to move through that and have that mystical experience. And I think possibly have a therapeutic um, response. We had never done the research to do this, but um, it sort of appears that way just based on anecdotes. 
So yeah, I don't think people are, are always um, seeking it out, but I think sometimes, um, yeah, I think, well, I, I guess then to, to sort of talk about the entrainment, um, my, my experience with that was about 18 months ago, um, I was at uh, Orchestrated Ministry of Sound, and I won't say too much, but I had a bit of a misspent youth, Right. And um, and I I was there. I, I I wasn't drinking. I hadn't had caffeine. I was completely sober. And then I just kind of got into some music and started dancing. And I had a full blown altered state of consciousness to the point that my partner asked me, "Have you taken something?" I said, "No. Check out my pupils. They are not dilated. <laughs> I'm I'm really really happy. I'm yeah. dancing to the toilet. People would have thought I was off my face. Yeah. But um, yeah. I think that is that might be an example of that entrainment." Mm, mm. Because then, to me, almost like the purposeful use of, let's go and have a quick look at what it's like at the top of the mountain. Oh, it's pretty cool. Right, let's do the work so we don't need, because we can't all afford, we can't all afford the first class ticket. And do you know what? <laughs> what the, the researchers at John Hopkins have been doing is showing that not only that, you can take people to the top of the mountain, um, have them want to do the work, and then you can then use psychedelics to actually work as a bit of a travelator to the top of the mountain. Right. So to assist the work. Yeah. There you go. I like this analogy. I like this analogy because it, it, it does seem to become more prevalent. My previous guest from the middle of nowhere, uh, a guy who has had um, attempted suicide, has his own podcast, opened up his, opened up his own group called Open Up for people to share their experiences, he, he just out of nowhere started to say, these are some of the things that I want to explore this year. And I've had it turn up in other podcasts. So, and, and you know, you look around, there, there are more people who are, are searching for a bigger experience. I think so, and I think it's for a couple of reasons. I think we're becoming more and more socially disconnected. Mm. You know, with social media, um, while, we, while we have more friends, they're not really our friends, are they? Right, yeah. And it's all this online communication, but like this human interaction we're having at the moment yes. is really, we're missing that. I think that's causing a lot of the problems that we're seeing, you know, increases, mm. le increased levels of depression and, and that sort of thing. Um, and I think in addition to that, um, there is, you know, people are looking for something bigger, but there's also been a shift away from the traditional um, ways of the traditional religions, you know, sort yeah. of new age sort of beliefs. Yeah. Previous pathways to the top Previous of pathway. the mountain. Yeah, and look, look, my, my dad's uh, my dad's a Catholic, and um, I, I've, I've kind of converted him over the years. He's you know he's pro pill testing, and um, and he wants to see cannabis legalized and. Uh, and, he, and he's open to psychedelics, not that he's taken any himself. Um, he's got the heart condition, I don't want to yeah. hurt that. But, um, you know, one day I was talking with him, and I think this is the game changer. I said, well, you know how you go to church and, you know, you sort of communicate to God through the priest? Well, why would I do that when I can just dial a direct line? Whoa. I like that. I like that. And I think the other thing there, just that reminds me of this analogy of dialing the direct line, uh, there's a famous philosopher who um, said, once you've got the message, hang up the phone. Because that's something I've found 
with uh, just this is all anecdotal. I've spoken to so many people that have used ayahuasca, in particular uh, ayahuasca, as, as I've sort of seen this with, is that um, people almost get cultish about it they kept going back back and back for more mm. uh, rick strasman said that one of the probably the only detrimental effects of psychedelic drugs is that they can create narcissism because the person i know all the answers now and i need to tell everybody those yeah and i've seen people's life trajectories just completely mm. change and now they want to do a documentary on ayahuasca or ayahuasca's told me this and now i'm doing that and everybody should do it yeah and everybody should yeah. do it now that's interesting because it long time ago i i had um one guy on the podcast um peter lyndon jones who had this big religious experience and he himself said oh for 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 five or six years i i, I was a bit of hard work prick because i just wanted to convert the whole world to religion and then after a while i calmed down so yeah i suppose that's the response to there, having a, a big mystical experience there's a funny there's a funny um story i just read online recently on one of the festival uh pages in australia and it said uh uh man man finally has stopped going on about his dmt experience from 30 years ago and they're a bit worried about him because he stopped he's been, all he's been doing for 30 years is telling people about this thing <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe something's wrong with him because he's finally let go of it <laughs> so um just going back to the uh, the, the drug-assisted therapy, how far is it before we're likely to see that on a sort of uh, more accessible basis here in Western Australia? I'm afraid it's going to be a, a long way away. Yeah. Um, I, we, we've, we started trying to engage in psychedelic research in Australia when PRISM was formed in 2011. Um, we put in a proposal to an independence ethics committee in 2012. It was rejected because they felt that the model that MAPS use, where it's done in a private clinic, was not appropriate to the Australian context. We're in a mm. university, a hospital, all these sorts of things. Mm. Uh, then, as I mentioned earlier, 2016, rejected from Deakin before it even hit the ethics committee. Um, where I'm at now with uh, uh, ECU having provided funding uh, for an open label trial with four people with PTSD um, in collaboration with a, a hospital who's providing in-kind services in terms of compounding and overnight stays. Um, this is really the closest that we've got so far. Mm. Um, so that's a positive thing. The, the, the rationale for me for doing this open label trial was that Perth would then come online as one of MAPS's um, sites for the international trial. Right. Unfortunately, because you know the mechanisms nations take time to move through in Australian bureaucracy, mm. um, I think by the time I finish recruiting the fourth participant and, and do the treatment with them, it'll already be an approved medication in the US, which does not mean it's gonna be an approved medication in Australia. Yeah. The FDA have an agreement with Canada and Israel and so it will be there. Um, they're also doing studies in Europe with the European Medical Association, Medicines Association. So uh, pretty much everywhere in Europe will have access to it then in 2021. Mm. But Australia is quite separate. And the Australian TGA is very conservative. Um, we've seen con uh, many examples of that. The most recent was um, they wanted to ban amyl nitrites, uh, which are poppers people quite popular mm. in the gay scene 
um, based on one eye doctor's recommendation that it be banned because you know in one in one million cases somebody experiences some eye problems with it. Um, people tried to get vaping up through the TGA, and I saw this on 60 Minutes. I thought they actually did a great report. Not usually a huge fan, but they asked the TGA, you know, this is 95% less harmful than smoking. Surely this is a good thing. And their response to that was, well, what would you rather be doing, crossing the freeway and being hit by a truck or being hit by a car? Well, that's the, probably the worst analogy I've ever heard of harm reduction in my life. Uh, it's, and, and it doesn't really fit yeah. the, the 25%. But no. it's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard to get um, the TGA approval. But at least we've got a team here in Perth that are trained. And if we get the study uh, up and running then we can demonstrate that it's feasible to do, that we can do it and we can do it safely. Mm. There's also a team that have been trained in Sydney that were unsuccessful in 2011 and a team that's been trained in Melbourne uh, who could also come online should we be able to get approval from the TGA Mm. to use it as a medicine. And in addition to that, um, PRISM will be uh, launching a sister organisation early this year um, and the idea of that is twofold. It's to separate PRISM from the science versus the advocacy, particularly policy advocacy more broadly, yeah. and just focus on the psychedelic science part of it. Um, and so this organisation will be involved in that. And their other, part, their other bit will be providing uh, education and training for psychedelic therapists in Australia. And so, you know, it's a bit more, in, in that sense, it's a bit more like, a, uh, I mean, it's not a university, and it may one day be a, a Centre for Excellence at a university, ideally, but, um, but it's that sort of more academic type environment where you can have those conversations around drug policy and evidence base and sort of offer education to students as well. Mm. So a little while, yeah. It's, 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 it's funny because, you know, you might hear in my voice, um, yeah. at times I get a little bit pessimistic because it's just, every time there's just another hurdle to get another over. Hurdle. And, you know, my, my timeline's just blown out so far now as each new hurdle I've had to get over. But, um, you know, it, I've been doing this, I've been working on it since 2011 and I'm still plugging away still at it. Still plugging so away must at be, it. I'm either very persistent, very stupid or very optimistic. Is it? Tough working and being so passionate about such a potentially contentious area because people will always have a residual viewpoint or belief. It's probably fueled from what you see on the TV, government policy, um, you know, uh, ne'er do well virtue signalers and and stuff like that. Um, so that will be inputting into people and you know with friends, colleagues, stuff like that. Is it, is it tough at times? With psychedelics, it's actually been one of the greatest things for my academic career, yeah. uh, just in my clinical career. Um, and even early on, talking to conservative radio stations, they don't want veterans coming back from Afghanistan killing themselves. They're all for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Yeah. The, public, the public are for it. Um, I think in some of the other areas of my research, like pill testing, um, you know, that, that's a little bit more controversial and that can be hard work at times. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, 
at the end of the day, I just keep bringing it back to the evidence. And yeah, um, I suppose you have to. Don't yeah, you? and you know, a lot of the perceptions people have are actually not true. They're myths that were perpetuated during the propaganda campaign on the war, war on drugs, and there's no evidence for it. During and here's all the data the to demonstrate that. It's not true. So that all started in that war on drugs Nixon area that you were talking about. Mm, mm. So, so I, I, I challenge them and say that's actually not true and here's the evidence. Mm. What have been some of the hidden benefits to yourself of participating down this route? And, and I have managed to connect with um, some really cool people. The, the training in uh, Netherlands has been one of the highlights of my life as a clinician. What were you training? To? Uh, the training in MDMA-assisted yeah. psychotherapy for the European Phase Three clinicians. They were just the coolest bunch of psychotherapists and psychiatrists I think I've ever hung out with because um, they're also open-minded. Um, Australia, uh, in psychology, it's very CBT-focused and you know they, they were very open to all different types of approaches and. The conversations were, were fascinating. Even locally, I've connected with um, just really interesting, clever people. Um, and you know, when I was back in Melbourne doing some training uh, late last year for Dancewise, who does the harm reduction work out at the festivals, looking after people that are having a mystical experience <laughs> unintendedly. Yeah, um, an unexpected, know, unexpected. Uh, you know, oh, it was really. I felt like I was coming home to to my tribe. Yeah. Um, of people that really get me and know where I'm coming from and know what it's all about. Uh, it's tough at the moment in Perth because I, I, I haven't quite reconnected. I've, got, I've, got, I've, I've started making connections, but it's not like that walking in a room with 50 people and just feeling like I'm, I'm with my tribe. Nah. Yeah, so, so there's been that aspect. So maybe of part it. of your role of coming back is to create the tribe. Yeah, maybe. Um, I won't say much, but I'm, but yeah. I'm having trouble. WA being different again. I mean, there's, there's, there's an organisation called the Australian Psychedelic Society. They have a chapter in Melbourne, a chapter in Sydney. I tried to get one up in Perth, but once again, no I think it's, it's, it's the, those barriers I talked about before. Um, and often in Western Australia, people want to do their own thing. So we won't, we won't join that. We'll just create our own group and do something different. Mm. Um, and I, I mean that tongue in cheek. I mean, it, it, is, it is something we often yeah. do things our own way in Western Australia, which is, which is, which is fine. Um, did I answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you did. I, I would expect, you know, asking you about the hidden benefits, I would expect given the very nature of it, um, you would meet a lot of very cool people. And it's opened my mind up. Mm. I was introduced to this really um, presenting at a conference in, uh, in Melbourne when I was first started working over there, having moved over. And I was talking about this very new sort of topic of novel psychoactives. Um, and I wanted a safe place to do it at where there wasn't going to be media coverage and moral panic. And so Moral I just, panic. oh yeah, well yeah. look, yeah. monkey dust at the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, one of my areas of research is drug moral panics. Um, yeah. So I, I, yeah, I saw this cool looking conference called Entheogenesis Australis, which I now know is this Australian premier psychedelic conference and they sort of run every second or third year. And it was just, it was good because I could present my information to people and most of them are actually, um, 
Now the people there were really clued up people. They knew about psychopharmacology and chemistry. Um, at one of the conferences I went to, someone showed me how to do thin layer chromatography to test for dimethyltryptamine in acacia species using um, kitchen household equipment. Um, you know, these, are, these are just really switched on people. They're really passionate about what they do. They might not have degrees, but wow, they were, yeah. they were really interesting people. And it was a safe place to do it. Um, but what gave me the opportunity to do was to then engage with this tribe of people mm. and listen to the, the invited speakers they brought over from overseas. So um, uh, Thomas Jess was one of them talking about the John Hopkins research. I can't remember what else, but I just went, wow. We're so isolated in Australia sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot coming out now in the media about it, but that's but it's been going on in the US for a long time now. Mm. The John Hopkins trial was in 2006. Um, and just went, you know what? This this makes a lot of sense. So it invited back to their next, um, sim they did sort of a symposium, an indoor one rather than an outdoor one, it invited me as a keynote. And uh, that was really fortunate because Rick Doblin was there. Mm. He was a very charismatic fellow. Yeah, I've listened to Rick. And um, he, not only presented the data, which um, talked to me, because working with people who are experiencing problems with alcohol and other drugs, um, mm. most have post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. And my experience has been that, um, well, if you treat the addiction, the post-traumatic stress gets worse. If you treat the um, trauma, the substance use gets worse. And it's really hard to treat them together. I haven't had a lot of positive results. There is a, a protocol out there that, that can be used, um, but I think, you know, it, it, I think when you've got that comorbidity, this is a particularly tough group of people. And so, looking at this data, I just went, "Wow, we need to be doing this here." Um, and then Rick met with us afterwards privately and sort of uh, told us, really gave us a pep talk, saying, "You know, you could be doing this in Australia," and that was the formation of of Prism. And then, you know, traveling to conferences overseas, as it beyond psychedelics in 2016, or it might have even been before then, uh, there's a great TED talk by Dr. Ben Sessa, who's basically doing where I wanted to take this to, and he's doing it now. Yeah. So he's doing MDMA-assisted psychotherapy with people with comorbid trauma and substance use problems, and he's just started recruitment. And I think that's I think that's what drew me into it. I went, I've got all these people I'm working with, and you know this is all the this is what the evidence says, but it's not working. Mm. And so here's an alternative approach. I'm opening. I'm open to embracing alternative approaches to the point to get the results. But, but to the point that you know, um, my my partner um, has an interest in uh, working with children in art therapy, and she's not currently doing that, but she's got into a, uh, WA's, set up a degree, it's the only one in WA. And um, so to sort of help out, because there was gonna be pretty tight getting in, um, I was encouraged to go, That we were encouraged to go to the art therapy conference they were holding at that university. And then um, the first day I might not have been in the best headspace because it wasn't like a conference I'd ever been to before. They yeah. had me, um, what's it called, quilting or not quilting. Um, uh, I, I don't know, but I felt like I'd cleaned the bathroom for three hours. It really wasn't my thing. Yeah. I'm not really, I'm, 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 I like mindfulness when I'm forced to be there because, you know, if, if you don't, you fall off the wave or you, yeah. you, 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 you get hurt. 
I like that. I'm not very good at mindfulness where I have to focus on, on the thing that I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, but then I came the second day, and even one of the last presentations really struck a chord with me, and I could see how the nonverbal was being expressed, as we're talking about before, that nonverbal component, and the connection with the collective unconscious. And I thought, actually, I could be open to this. Certainly, I wouldn't be an art therapist. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeless at drawing. Um, <laughs> uh, not that you have to be a good artist, but um, I could just start to see how this could actually work as an intervention. So being open, I really think I'm more open through coming through that pathway, more open to different ideas and listening to them, maybe not agreeing with them, but certainly being open to listen to them and um, so an epiphany for me has been after going to that conference and also doing the training with the DanceWise team on how we can better integrate people as they're leaving the tent that we've looked after them in. And, you know, because some people find it really difficult to integrate from that mystical experience. Yes. When they, they go back to work and, you know, we, we, are, we are all one. And if you start treating your boss like we are all one, things don't go well at work. No, and, and so we had this, you know, sort of discussion around how we can... You know, better integrate people and I often get emails from people um, who have had a difficult experience and they haven't reintegrated they want to see somebody and I don't really know anyone in Perth I've got a few contacts over east and so my epiphany was um, at the moment I volunteer my time as a psychologist working at um, North Metro Community Alcohol and Other Drug Service team and I reckon I'm going to drop that and once Ellie's completed a degree, I'll do some assessments with, I don't like working with kids, so, but I'll do some assessments that can be bulk billed because I'm a, yeah. she's not a psychologist, she's a teacher. And we'll specialise in children with special needs and people integrating, wanting integration from psychedelic experiences. Yeah. And I'll, I'll sort of lead that work, but get her to do the art therapy to really right. help draw that that's, out. Can, that's the future for you. Uh, uh, yeah, that, your, that's the immediate future. And... Few other clinical trials that are in the works. Um, uh, next month, we're doing uh, a program called Drumbeat that was uh, developed by one of the local AOD services here. It's a group program that involves drumming. Yeah. Um, but we're actually going to look at it for people with rheumatoid arthritis and see whether it helps increase their self efficacy and their um, ability to engage in self management. So I've got that going on. Um, been floating around the idea of a trial of um, medical cannabis for preventing relapse from methamphetamine dependence and of course hopefully some some point this year um start recruiting people for my mdma trial so mm. i figure i won't, I'm, I, I resigned uh on monday from from that role i was with four or five weeks notice yeah um just thinking where things are going with my clinical trials and now this epiphany I've had where this is kind of... Yeah. I'd, I'd, I've always been... I've, I've never wanted to work in private practice. I've always worked in the public health system as a psychologist because my thinking is um, twofold. One is a lot of the people I've seen in private practice aren't very good. That's why mm. they're in private practice because they can't get a job in, in uh, the, the, the yeah. public sector. But at the same time, um, if you run a really good business, you have a good business model, um, you don't necessarily give good client care, but you can make a lot of money out of it. And not about making money, that's, that's not what mm. I'm in this for. And so this seemed like a way of um, you know, ensuring that uh, a particular group of people have access to cheap services because of bulk bill everyone, 
and um, they're a group that can't currently seem to access services. Yeah. And so it fits with my philosophy. So if you had have asked me, yeah, five, 10 years ago, uh, private practice, never, never going there. Yeah, but now. Uh, just, I just, Integration. Just, it, yeah, it fits. There's a, there's, there's a synergy mm. to that that fits with my personal value. So what have you, throughout your, your, your trip and the story that we've you very kindly shared. I like, you, I like the way you call it a trip. No, yeah. <laughs> Didn't no mean, pun intended. No pun intended. Um, that would have made me trip, setting. Um, <laughs> because I held the space. Um, what did you? What have you learned about yourself throughout all of this? Oh, I've had I've had a few I've had a few um, challenging experiences. Um, uh, when, when I was first doing some of the media work at Curtin, I was through the School of Psychology, and they were just basically sticking a camera in front of me and talk, and there was no guidance. And um, and then I finished up my teaching role there because I got sick of marking assignments, and that's when I started yeah. my role with Endry. And um, I was doing a live radio interview um, with Jelton, yeah. and so I was only Jelton, you know, I should be fine. And they asked, it was about 25 IM bone, a, a synthetic... Uh, sort of novel psychoactive that's being sold as LSD at the time, but now it's also turning up a lot in, in, in ecstasy and causing deaths. And so someone had been busted at court with 50 tabs or something of it, and they wanted to talk about it. But then it got down, so I talked about you know, this issue with all these new drugs emerging, and then we ban them, and then there's new drugs, and they said, well, what do you think the solution is? The right answer... <laughs> was? The right answer would have been to say... Um, Something along the lines of decriminalisation. I can't, I can't explicitly remember what I was told afterwards. What the right answer was. <laughs> afterwards, the, the wrong answer was: well, if we just were to regulate the market, these products wouldn't be out there, and we could have the safer products like LSD and psilocybin and MDMA, and not these thousands of other chemicals that are far more harmful. But unfortunately, um, because uh, injury is funded by the Commonwealth Government. Uh, I clearly needed to be a bit more careful about what I said and um, and actually got some really good coaching from the director there, right. Simon Linton. Uh, and I was actually at the end of it, I said, thanks, Simon. I've been doing media work for 10 years now. Nobody's ever actually sat down with me and told me it. how to do it. I had a little bit of coaching at the start, but, but th there was that. Another key event for me was... Um, after doing some trip sitting at Rainbow, um, we, I, I hesitate there because I, I, I was thinking I probably shouldn't have said the festival. Um, but anyway, so in 2017, I was at this Victorian festival, 20,000 people hanging out with a whole lot of other drug nerds, ethnopharmacologists like me. And um, some of us were volunteering, we were doing talks, we were doing all kinds of things. It was a really cool camp we are at. Every 10 minutes, somebody would come up to us and say, do you want to buy some drugs? And we brought all up all the reagent testing kits. So we'd say, maybe, can we just test it first? And, uh, and we'd test it, oh, MDMA, yeah, maybe come back later. Um, yeah. 24 hours in, we identified PMA, which is a deadly drug because it takes two hours to come on. So people drop and then they go, oh, this is shit, and drop four more and they're dead. And so we went to the emergency controller and he um, was ex-law enforcement. He said, look, we don't want people dying here. You don't want people yeah. dying here. We, I know that this is breaking the law. 
just just set it up. Set up a pill testing station. Don't advertise it. Get word of mouth out. Say we've identified. This has been identified. Yeah. These services are available. Throw it into the crowd. Out the back. Out the back. In the tent here. You got to walk through there to get to it. No signage. At, but we were able to see a number of people came through. Some of them actually had already taken the pill and they were very sick and they said, can you just tell me what you think it is? And so, um, you know, that was, it was a really positive thing. I actually protected myself legally. I didn't handle any drugs. And I had uh, plenty of volunteers from the community putting their hands up saying, we'll break the law, we'll, we'll touch the drugs if you can help us interpret what the results mean. Yeah. And so my role was the interpretation. And then sometimes explaining to people, well, this is 2CE. 2CE is kind of like acid, so it's not like MDMA at all. Um, and, you know, the dose is, a bit, is quite low, so you need to be careful with the dose. And then say, oh... Oh, thanks. I'm really glad I knew that because that could have been a really intense time if I thought I was having ecstasy and I had an LSD experience. Yeah. I might just have half and see what happens. Um, <laughs> and then there were people where we, we were seeing this pattern which we thought was the embomy because we'd seen it in Chapel Street kill several people only weeks earlier. And most of those punters just chucked him in the bin. And so it felt really positive. We'd done... We'd, we'd, I hadn't personally broken the law, but it was certainly unsanctioned. But it feels like we... we Maybe we didn't, we can't say we saved a life, but we certainly helped a lot of people from not getting sick. Yeah. Um, I then was in a role where I was going to different services, um, running reflective practice groups with the counsellors. And um, one of the services I was going back to was where I, one I used to manage when I realised I didn't like management. Man, mineral management sucks. So I had to get out of that and become a yeah. clinician again. And so I knew them quite well, which was... Um, possibly didn't work to my favour because there weren't many people there, which meant it got a little chatty and informal and I talked about what happened at Rainbow. Somehow down the line, it had been communicated to management that I'd been gone to a festival where I'd been testing drugs, i.e. I'd been taking drugs at a festival. This was right. then escalated to the organisation I worked for, to their management, yeah. and threats were made. And uh, basically, I, re I, I just thought the easiest way out of this is to resign. I'm just going to resign before, it's just, I'm not going to fight all, you know, it, this, this, I can just see this battle that's going to go on for years. Let's just resign and here's my letter of resignation, I'm out. And I had the job at ACU lined up and I just yeah. thought, I'll do some consultancy work for a few years. But what it taught me was, um, I think you've got to be careful about not only what you say to people, but the way in which they might interpret that. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and of course, the problem with Chinese whispers. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So um, this is all heady stuff. How do you keep yourself grounded on an everyday level? Ocean, kiteboarding? Yes, yes. So you, so you already know that. I, yeah. I am an, yeah well, I, and I said it, I, I, I got into the water when I was 12. Really passionate. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a zero or a hundred person. So everything's zero or a hundred. Yep. I don't do anything half-assed. And so when I was growing up surfing, um, actually my parents got called in at one point for you know the parent-teacher interview. They thought I was on drugs because I was falling asleep at my desk. Yeah. It was because I was going surfing at four o'clock in the morning, <laughs> going to school and then going surfing in the afternoon, and I was falling asleep at school. Um, so yeah, I find that's my that that keeps me it's where in you check. Get yeah, grounded. And yeah. So surfing, surfing is, is, it helps keep me grounded because um, just being out in the water 
and sitting there on a nice day is almost a spiritual experience in and of itself, just being at one with nature. And it is mindful sort of, you know, when you're actually surfing the waves, it's not necessarily while you're sitting waiting for one for 20 minutes. Um, and yeah, I've picked up kiteboarding since moving back. I used to snowboard in Melbourne. That was my other outlet, which really kept me focused mm. on the moment because if you mess that up, you yeah, break hurts. bones. I broke my back doing that. And um, so then I saw these people kiteboarding and I think I'd seen it a couple of years before at Margaret River and a guy on a wave, saw kiteboarding on a wave and went, wow, that looks awesome. And so typically, I'm zero to 100. Um, last season, um, I, I took it up and persisted. It's been the hardest sport I've ever learned. It's been the first sport I've ever sought out lessons for. And that's for safety reasons more than anything. Yeah. I was, just I killed myself a couple of times at the start when I didn't know how all the safety mechanisms worked. Um, but I've also found it to be very rewarding. Um, and having had some, some, a bit of coaching recently, uh, from from a colleague, um, the, the the learning curve is getting less and less steep, and yeah, if I get my that that's my my time. It's it is about adrenaline. It is about mindfulness, but it's also just about completely getting away from all of this mm. other stuff that we've been talking about. Yeah, which I imagine is important because it could become all consuming in every part of your life. It it could be. Yeah, I think yeah. it's really important if you're very passionate about something. Um, to have some other outlets to just yeah. turn off from that part of yourself. If you could go back to um, probably around about, when was it, 2011, when you said you first advocated for psychedelics. If you could go back to that, Stephen, just before he started advocating and started this journey and give him a piece of advice for his oncoming journey, what would that be? I'm not sure that I'd give him any advice. <laughs> Because if I told him it, it was it's 2019 and he still hasn't got his study up, he'd probably go, oh, screw this, I'm, this is too hard, I'm out. <laughs> Go surfing. Yeah. Um, I I'm not sure that, um, I'm not sure that there'd be much advice. Uh, yeah, because I don't think I'd like to tell him that this is going to be a very long journey. Hmm. Um, I think I, I would probably just say, look, this is this is controversial. You know, you, you might, you're taking a risk here. It's a calculated risk. Take the risk. Right. Um, and my final question I ask all my guests, um, if there was a little nugget of knowledge or experience that you could just upload into the collective consciousness just to make it easier for everybody, what would that be? Oh, I remember finding this one very difficult to answer and I'm not sure what I wrote down in my answer. Um, I didn't actually ask you this before. <laughs> uh, uh, can, can you prompt me? How do you mean? Oh, you, you did ask me this before. Uh, something to upload to the unconsciousness, to the collective unconsciousness. Um, Stephen's little nugget. Oh well, one of my one of my favorite one of my favorite quotes is um, the plural the plural of anecdote is not evidence. <laughs> so just because I'm often I would often be talking to people, um, you know, about smoking, for example, and they're like, "Oh, my uncle lived to ninety, and he he smoked all his life." Well, that's an anecdote, and if you got an auntie that did too, that's still an anecdote. That's not evidence. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, so, so I think, oh, I, I think another thing that's, that's sort of really something that I'm finding difficult to manage at the moment is social media. Yeah. I don't have a Facebook account. I piggyback off my partner's account and that's sort of a personal thing with personal people. I have a professional Twitter account. Someone tried to get me into Instagram and I went, no, this is, I'm not having a third one. But even with it, with Twitter, there's there's um, I'm doing it for professional reasons. But um, like many of us, we are often searching for um, not reassurance but praise. And so, you know, if you're being retweeted, in many ways, that's it's getting praised, mm. and it, it actually releases dopamine in the brain. Yes, and. So I've, Which I've, itself I've, is very addictive. Yeah, and so I swing from um, you know using Twitter to sort of having a break from it, and then using it again, and because I see that it's helpful because I can you know have conversations with people and challenge people in a, in a public domain. But I wonder, I, I do wonder. I, I feel like Facebook has connected people, and it's been a useful tool, but it's also disconnected us. Mm. And I think with Twitter. It's, it's created the situation we have in Australia with politics where, um, you know, the, the media and social media are running the policy agenda. You know, the, we, we, how many politicians have we had, uh, sorry, how many prime ministers have we had in so many years? It's just, we, we can't have stable governments. And I think it's, it's, it's actually something that's perpetuating the problem. Because as people become more disenfranchised by the fact that their politicians aren't leading, they're not making mm. decisions. Think about the same-sex marriage thing. You know, you had 70% polling support, but we still had to have a plebiscite on it. Mm. What a waste of money. Somebody just sort of stepped up and made a decision. Yeah, bang. And, and bang, let's just, we'll just do it. And so people are becoming more and more disfranchised by that. They're expressing that on social media. And in turn, what you end up with is more fragmented governments that are less likely to make decisions. And just, I'm just worried things are going to get worse. Mm. And so, so the little nugget out of that would be? Um, that... I think for the collective unconscious, maybe, 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 let's, not, maybe, maybe let's not go down Twitter. We, we can have Facebook <laughs> and Instagram. Maybe, maybe Twitter's not so good. Fair enough. Even though I'm a, I'm a late advocate, I came on board to it because I was at an early career research event and they said, you've got to have one as research. It's your best way of communicating with media. So I'm usually a late, with many things I'm a late adopter, um, crypto markets and cryptocurrencies and everything else. Anyway, so I set it up and got right into it and I can see the, the, the benefits of it from a professional, but I worry about what impact it is having at a broader social level. And so yeah. if we're talking to the collective unconscious, let's, let's just delete Twitter. <laughs> Fair enough. Stephen, it's been an absolute treat and pleasure to talk to you today. If somebody wanted to find you, where can they? Twitter. Uh, yes, yeah, so Twitter. at Stephen with a PhD, right? Um, I'm pretty publicly visible on line um yeah. so stephen bright ecu stephen bright curtain um so i've got two email addresses there that people and, and phone numbers people can contact me on yeah um yeah i uh i'm, I'm quite and that, that, i mean that's why i don't use facebook because i i do clinical work um i don't 
want to blur boundaries with clients yeah. asking to be friends. Even when I've had research students asking to be friends and I just hold off onto it until they graduate and then I accept the friendship. Yeah. Um, I used to have a thing whereby I would only, I'd only accept a friend's Facebook request, um, a Facebook request from a work colleague when I'd left that job. Yeah, yeah, actually I, I, I am the same. Exactly the same, yeah. I'm, I'm very clear with... I'm very clear with um, my boundaries sort of that way. Probably one thing, I don't know if this is an interesting way to finish, but one thing um, that's a bit of a, 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 an interesting insight into my life is I don't have good boundaries with where my personal life and my professional life finishes and starts. I know I don't want to go kiteboarding that's personal life, but, um, you know, when I went over to Victoria, everybody I know works in the field in some way, shape or form. I don't know anyone that doesn't. Um, and so, you know, I was catching up with all these people and the first person I saw, I, I, I recognised the accent, the face didn't make sense. And that's because he was at an organisation, you know, doing something completely different. Mm. I'm like, oh, you do trip sitting now, mate. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm um, sorry, sorry, just didn't, the connection didn't happen and then um, I was, as I was walking out, I shook someone's hand and they said, what's, what's with the, the handshake? Let's have a hug. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I'm at work or I don't know what's yeah. going on. It's all very confusing for me. <laughs> Stephen, thank you very much. It's been mega insightful into a, it's been good to hear actually somebody who's um, you know, got so much experience and evidence in an area that, like I said, is is becoming more and more populated on the internet and etc and and stuff so the opportunity to speak to somebody has been awesome as well as get to hear your story thank you very much thanks for having me and i hope your <laughs> listeners find it both entertaining and, and insightful <laughs>